listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Rachel Jackson, Rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And the botanical feature I am most looking forward to seeing this coming year um, is split into two because why answer one if I can have two? And the first is daffodils. I absolutely just love seeing the daffodils. And the second super political answer is sunflowers. Uh, Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. And it's hard for me to be specific when looking at things I'm looking forward to growing again, but what it always reminds me of when the trees start, start getting their leaves back and uh, things start growing again is that it also means uh, the return of birds and the you know when they start really coming back and the building of nests and we always have a, a birds that build a nest right above our door and we're able to watch them from the inside uh, and then lay their eggs and you know the chicks hatch and everything and it's such a really cool experience it's one of my favorite things that happen throughout every year. And so I, yeah, mm. we've been seeing them slowly come back and start kind of, and we'll just sit there and watch them slowly build these nests, and then all of a sudden, babies, and it's really fascinating. So yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I am so excited for the return of my milkweed garden. I planted this a couple of years ago uh, in this troublesome patch of my yard that I couldn't keep clear of weeds and because milkweed is a weed but it's a local weed and the butterflies love it i've been working to get it just really situated in there strongly and uh at this point i don't really have to do a whole lot of work every year they die and then every year they come back double and it's just really exciting. It's one of the first things that grows in my yard. And I always look forward to seeing life return after winter. But life doesn't always return. Um, it doesn't always return that quickly either. Um, there's been a lot of of talk in recent years about being in the next major extinction event right now. Um, there's, there's a lot of talk about what humans are doing to the planet and the things that may or may not survive. I remember during uh, the sort of global lockdown in 2020 uh, from COVID, there was what some researchers were calling an anthropause you know, where people were all inside and there wasn't any business and there wasn't any commerce. And there was all these stories of dolphins, you know, in, in the canals of Venice, which ended up not being true. Actually, most of these stories were not actually true about n nature returning. But the, like the meme that came up was nature is healing. I think my favorite one was, was a bunch of like Crocs, like the shoes floating in the water. And it, and it was like, um, Crocs are returning to their native habitat. Nature is here. Um, <laughs> I'm just sad that those stories, most of those stories weren't true. Yeah, well, they were good stories. And so yeah. they, people gave didn't really want to hear from the fact checkers. They did give us a little bit of hope. I mean, you can look at like the carbon levels all went down. But then when people went back to work, they doubled to make up for yeah. all of the lost What was it like areas in China so were able to... It ended up being worse. Yeah. Areas in China were able to see mountains that they hadn't seen 
in a long time yeah. from their houses yeah. and stuff like that because of um, less smog and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Air pollution. Yeah, nature kind of healed for a minute, and then we came back, and uh, nature paid the price again. Mm. But nature is resilient, and we're doing this series on healing, and so I wanted to think deeply about nature's ability to heal, about ecosystems' ability to heal, and what better time to look at um, with nature healing than one of the most cataclysmic events that has ever happened uh, that we know of in the earth, on the earth. And that is the, uh, the Cretaceous extinction event, the asteroid that famously killed the dinosaurs. And so I wanted to take a minute here at the beginning and give you kind of a minute by minute play by play, because I, 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 I don't think we've really quite recognized the scope and the magnitude of this destruction. And uh, I just think it's neat. So roughly 65-ish million years ago, give or take, um, there was this massive asteroid larger than Mount Everest and just so happened to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, depending on who you are. And it crashed through the atmosphere into the Yucatan Peninsula, um, which by this point, most folks know. Um, I remember when I was a kid, nobody quite knew how the dinosaurs died out. Um, there's even there's even a scene in Jurassic Park where there's like uh, the kid is like explaining all the different theories to to um, uh, Dr. Grant, and I, I watched that the other day, and I thought, oh, doesn't everyone know it was an asteroid? Um, but we didn't quite know that then. But satellite imagery and excavations, and we found this enormous crater down there that came from this asteroid that must have been the size of Mount Everest. And so in the instant of impact that it hits the ground, there is a flash of light. And that light is so hot that it incinerates every single thing within about a thousand mile radius, a thousand miles. And so anything a thousand miles away from, from Mexico is just completely gone, incinerated. The hole that it creates is roughly 15 miles deep and 62 miles wide. So 15 miles deep is this hole. And all of the mantle, the earth, the crust, the rock, it all gets liquefied and sent outward and then back upward. The way that if you imagine throwing a rock into a pool, the way that 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 little like bit of water comes up. And so what happens is this uh this temporary mountain of molten rock and, and mantle that's six miles high is formed right then and there. There are earthquakes around the world so massive that it triggered volcanic eruptions in what would later become India that lasted for 30,000 years and covered nearly the entire subcontinent in a lava flow. There was a shockwave that traveled about 600 miles per hour that leveled everything that wasn't instantly burned in all of North and South America. And as waters rushed back in, it caused tsunamis that blanketed all of the coastlines of the entire world, no matter where you were. If you were on the coastline, miles, miles in, you were flooded and drowned. Good times, right? And this is all pretty quickly after the impact. So then 
as that you imagine throwing a rock in, into water and there's like a splash upward, that same sort of thing happens except with all of the molten rock and everything gets thrown into the stratosphere and some into space itself and then gets up there and orbits the earth for a few minutes and then falls back down to earth all around the planet. So we're not just talking about Mexico anymore. This stuff has gone up there. It's circled the planet and it is now bombarding the planet in every single area of, of the world. Um, the kinetic energy carried by these, uh, these little objects that we called, uh, spherules because they were like round little balls. Um, so the, the kinetic energy of those things falling back to earth is about 20 million megatons. So if I can put that into perspective, it would be like dropping a one megaton hydrogen bomb in four mile intervals around the entire world. So that's like 10 Hiroshima's every four miles across the entire world is how much energy was in those, those little balls of rock falling back down to the earth. Um, and that would have incinerated just about everything. Um, there's a 2022 paper published in Nature that looked at the fossils of sturgeon and paddlefish in North Dakota in this destructive layer that we find around the world from all of this falling down of awful debris. Um, and it found those little spherules in the gills of fossilized fish. So if they're in the gills, then we can pretty safely say that those fish died during that event because, you know the world would have then been blanketed by ash and so they would have been buried. So the fact that they were in the gills tells us that they died because of this. And those fish's bones are kind of like uh, like tree rings where you can see little seasons of growth. And so by looking at those fossils in North Dakota, we were able to figure out that the impact was likely in late spring early summer. And the angle of that impact also suggests an early morning collision. So let's say all of this happened May 20th, about 9 a.m., just to help uh, give you some, some, some details into that. So all of that falling debris heated up the atmosphere to hundreds of degrees for a few minutes. There are some scientists who say it could have gotten as high as a thousand degrees in the air. So even if you're not hit by something, the air itself is the temperature of an industrial oven uh, for at least a couple of minutes. And this is all happening within about an hour of impact. And then it sparked fires across the world. And so all of those beautiful trees, all those new flowers and vegetables and fruits and beautiful new trees that had been evolving over the eons just laid to waste. Those fires would have burned for months and months and months, killing every single thing, essentially, that was not initially wiped out by the explosion, by the falling debris, by the thousand degree temperature in the air. And then blocking out the sun with all of the smoke. And so after that thousand degrees, you know, within a few days, there's no sunlight anymore. And the temperature drops by dozens and dozens of degrees and suddenly it's cold. There's ice on the ground. What used to be a world 
why jungle suddenly became an ice planet. And so we think of the dinosaurs dying slowly over time, but probably, generally speaking, most species would have become extinct in a matter of minutes or hours after that impact. This would have been immediate and devastating and dramatic, and there should not have been anything that survived. Right? Because yeah. if, if, even if you survived that initial explosion, the, the fires, the, the, the air temperatures, and then that immediate drop in temperature and the blacking out of the sun, I mean, that should destroy the entire food web. I mean, 80%, 90% of plankton died because there's no sun. And without the plankton, which provides the backbone of the, uh, the food web in the sea, we lost all the ammonites and the large marine reptiles and crashed the entire marine food web. Uh, we still have uh, horseshoe crabs, those awful, awful uh, northeastern creatures that have survived every single yeah. uh, extinction event. God bless them. Uh, the bottom feeders with their magical blue blood. I feel like we've talked about them before. They, are, uh, they look like if if you combined a demon with a catcher's mitt and they have survived all of these years but very few things did i mean 80% of all animal species died uh died out forever hmm. in, in that in that probably just a, within a month or two gone completely the world reduced to ash to a cold and awful and dead winter so what survives? And how does the world rebound? How, how do we come back from that? Well, probably within, uh, within about a year or so, uh, the sun started to peek back through the clouds. And there's all of these species that are pretty good at hibernating or surviving off of very little. You think of uh, in, in times of food scarcity, uh, alligators can just kind of go to sleep. Uh, a lot of little mammals can survive on just little things and live underground. And if they were so lucky to have been in their burrow when the when the impact happened, then they could have been saved from the the worst effects of it and emerged into this world and hibernated for some time until the sun returned. And when the sun returned, there was nothing green left on the planet. But there's this miraculous thing called a fern that has survived for millions and millions of millions of years because it is so resilient, because it, can, it doesn't need seeds to, to, to grow. It sends out spores like... Uh, like a fungus and those spores can go into the soil and can lay dormant in the soil for decades. And then once it gets turned over and there's some sunlight and some warmth and some water, it can grow. And so right above the layer, this global layer that we have of destruction, there is another layer of just an obscene amount of ferns. It's like the world went from being a global jungle to a global fern field. I don't know what a what you would call that. I like fern field. It's good. That's Trademark good alliteration. It. Yeah. <laughs> Trademark it. 
Fernfield. Uh, there's a lot of new studies being done right now on what makes ferns so resilient um, with the hopes of being able to take some of that genetic information and splice it into things like corn and wheat to help with our food supply globally um, because we're kind of doing similar things to our environment right now and uh, nothing as as instantly catastrophic as a meteor the size of Mount Everest. But what maybe happened in uh, an hour or two, 65 million years ago, could feasibly happen within a couple of hundred years, thanks to human intervention in the Anthropocene. So we can, uh, we can thank ferns <laughs> for the fact that humans took over the planet. So if you have ferns in your yard or if you see a fern on the side of the road, just take a minute and, and, and give it a little high five and thank it. Say, thanks, fern. You're the reason why my tiny mouse-like ancestors survived. And then after you started growing, provided food and shelter and water for them and nurtured the world back from almost total collapse into uh, the beautiful and vibrant thing that we have today. And we're sorry for uh, destroying the world again but we trust that you'll have it taken care of and you'll survive this and you'll help the next species to take over the world. So thanks, ferns. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> when we all die off, ferns will still be here to save what's left. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's unrealistic. Uh, that I, I'm, I'm not super optimistic about the fate of humanity in general. Um, I, I don't think we will survive for, you know, until the heat death of the universe or anything like that, we'll become extinct just like the dinosaurs went extinct and there will be another life form. Maybe one will gain consciousness like us, maybe not. Maybe the universe doesn't need consciousness. Maybe consciousness uh, is a little too mm, chaotic for long-term survival. Um, but either way, the ferns will probably be here and the ferns the will probably help nature heal. And I kind of love that. I kind of love ferns. Do you so, have ferns? Um, I my backyard used to be full of mm -hmm. them when we first moved in. What did you do with those ferns? Huge tree back there. Oh, I murdered them uh, ruthlessly. I thought you and liked they, uh, ferns. Pulled up all their root systems. I didn't know. It was years ago, and I didn't understand the value and beauty of ferns. And so I I repent. Do you think they'll forget? No, ferns never forget. They are they are known for their vindictiveness. Um, <laughs> Creepy turn. Yes. Revenge is a dish best served with fronds, as 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 we say. And as we'll hear later on, everything is connected, so you need to be careful, Zach. Okay. <laughs> All things well, are connected in some way. That's true. We will talk about that later yeah. in the Down the Wormhole Minute. And I actually do want to think a little bit uh, about um, not only our the precarious nature of life and the stubborn nature of life in general. I should say, I want to think more deeply about the precarious nature of individual species and individual lives, but the almost ruthless tenacity of life in general and how not only do we live within that as, as humans, as good people, but how can we also affirm any kind of good overseeing theistic God in the midst of a system of life that is just 
so brutal. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So then, let's break it down into two questions then. First of all, what is your general feeling about the uh, the resiliency of life on Earth? Are you feeling a little hopeless right now um, at, at the future of human life, of the Anthropocene in general? Are you feeling optimistic? Do, are there things that are being developed that give you hope? Or have you just, you know, you buying land in Kentucky because it'll be beachfront soon? <laughs> Well, I think there was there was more than two questions, um, or more than a single <laughs> yes. single question. No, no, in the sense that your very first question was, you know, hope about life, and then you went to the human and all of our uh, destructive n- patterns that we have towards nature in these last, specifically, a uh, couple hundred, couple thousand years at at best. Um, so I'll answer the first, and that is, I believe that since the Precambrian explosion, plus or minus half a billion years ago, you know, give or take a million years or something. <laughs> plus or minus a half a billion years. <laughs> you don't get years. to say that that often, you know? Um, when that happened, there's no going back. The difference between zero and one is right. infinite. And I think once we hit one, there's no going back to zero. What's in between, though, or what's beyond that, I don't know. I don't think that life on Earth will ever cease, barring some um, external catastrophe, like a bombardment of asteroids, right? Not just a singular asteroid, because we've seen that that we survived that. So a bombardment of massive asteroids, which I I don't have a a working crystal ball at the moment, so I can't say it. But, (laughs) you know, outside of something along those lines, I think life will exist on Earth, and I think life will thrive on Earth, not just simply exist. There'll be moments of regeneration and renewal and demise. But overall, I I have no negativity or pessimism to that piece. I also have very little... uh, I'm very ambivalent toward the existence of humanity as a whole. I kind of don't care if we survive. I kind of think it would be okay if we didn't. <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like you're channeling Adam right now. I, well, a just bit. more of a, no, just more of a geological understanding of time in the sense that if we really truly look at the longevity of creatures as a whole, they're not that long. And we frankly lump dinosaurs, you know, 165 million years of dinosaurs into one category, but there's a reason that the Stegosaurus and the Tyrannosaurus didn't exist at the same time, right? That they were massive extinctions of huge creatures throughout all of those periods. But 
you know, we can't understand 100 million years and 150 million years in any reasonable way. So we just like, oh, dinosaurs. Right? The, well, hold, hold, we, hold, 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 hold on there. Wait a minute now. According to Jurassic Park, they did exist at the same time. Weird that a movie got a fact wrong. I'm just I mean, they existed in 1993 together. Right. Exactly. But yeah. so my apologies to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Uh, but we are closer to the T-Rex than the T-Rex was to the, to the Stegosaurus. That's right. But we lump them all I together. So we f- we forget that extinctions happen all the time. And there's nothing wrong with it. And the extinctions happen, you know, species upon species. And they're, they're, not, they're not so long lived. A million years? Two million, mm-hmm. maybe? And if we, if we take a look at the... Um, human side when do we when do we decide how old we are are we six million years old right is it when we first barely started separating from our primate ancestors and do we look back to lucy you know three-ish million years ago do we do we just look at the homo species right homo erectus homo sapiens etc homo neanderthals do we look at just the homo sapiens of the last fifty thousand years and even if we only look at those ones that we'd say okay could they possibly breed together and have non-sterile offspring yeah we're really only looking at a couple million years so i'd say if we have another million years we're doing good as a species on this planet and i have no issues with that i have major issues with 2022 and how the future is going to look from a personal standpoint, from a, Mm. what world am I leaving my grandchildren, my great grandchildren? What world are they going to have to survive in? And that's where I'm not ambivalent, but really very pessimistic. Um, And that's, that's what's hard. And that's where this change comes from. So, Total optimism when it comes to Earth, ambivalence when it comes to humanity, and pessimism when it comes to 21st century humanness, and sadness when it comes to the very real personal. That's that's my long answer. Yeah, I I can agree with that, especially when you look at you know all of the environmental destruction that's caused by humans for such a long time. That I do worry about that with my children and grandchildren and just later generations, right? And how it seems like at least I don't I wouldn't argue this for every culture, every human culture right now, but at least the US culture, if maybe Western culture does seem to be focused more on the immediate and not thinking at least the narrative that I seem to pick up on is not thinking about the long term ramifications of our decisions on our future generations that that just does not seem to be talked about as much or at least I don't hear it. And that, yeah, that always worries me. It's more of a financially, right? Making sure that our next generation is financially stable, but not looking at financially as in monetarily, right? Not just, well, on that note, it is March 18th right now. This episode probably will not be released for another month. So the thing I'm about to say might be totally moot if there's, you know, nuclear war or something like that. <laughs> Which is not an impossibility. Uh, no, every day feels like we might be a little closer to global thermonuclear war. But right now we don't. Right now, 
the entire world has very strongly sanctioned Russia and their economic system is falling apart. And the price of gas is gone crazy, despite the fact that Russia provides basically none of our gas. Um, we're still hugely uh, affected by, by the instability of the world. The instability of the world that comes on the tails of two years of a global pandemic. And uh, one of the things that is coming out of this right now is a, uh, a lot of money is being put into alternative energy sources. And Europe's been doing this for some time now. Uh, but we're starting to see more investment in the U.S. And this always happens when gas prices go up. When it, when it becomes harder to pay for this sort of thing, then there's financial incentive to increase uh, renewable energy sources. And uh, I was just reading about some really interesting carbon capture technology as well. That I mean, the problem with a lot of carbon capture technology, where they take carbon out of the atmosphere and then they convert it into something, is then they want to use it as fuel to, uh, you know, to, to provide a financial incentive, basically. And so they'll take carbon out of the atmosphere, turn it into pellets, and then give it to you to burn, which sends it right back up. But there is some really interesting stuff now being done um, in which that carbon is taken out and put back into the earth, which could potentially save us from a climate catastrophe in addition to all the other catastrophes that we're having. Um, there is some really interesting breakthroughs with nuclear power. Uh, the newer nuclear power plants can, uh, can run off of the spent fuel of previous generations of nuclear power plants. And so if we were to build hmm. more nuclear plants now with the modern uh, machinery inside, we don't even need to enrich more uranium. It's, it's our, we can just use the stuff that's in locked away in the salt mines right now. And, uh, we could be greening the earth once again. Um, and I, th there is just more of a financial incentive right now to do that because of the global instability than there was a couple of years ago. And so there is a little bit of hope on the horizon that maybe, maybe we'll get some sense knocked into us before it's too late um, and the ferns have to save us. Um, but I'm not super optimistic either about the uh the collective intelligence of humankind yeah at times yeah i feel that way too especially when it comes to um when i talk about what it means to uh make sure that we're caring for our future generations the fact that it it still always seems to be that many focus more selfishly on their own future generations, oh. not others. You know, we... Yeah, so it's almost like you need to trick the wealthy and powerful into making decisions that would benefit the masses by making them think that it would just benefit themselves. It actually reminds me of a conversation we had um, oh, with the friends of yours when we did the series on race and racism. and Yeah, the... Color Correction Podcast. Yes, with the Color Correction crew. And and we were talking about, um, you know, something similar when we're talking about racism and, and white people focusing on it and how, and we talked about, I think climate change came up, right? We were talking about environmental racism. That's right. And how it was a, yes. um, how the way that 
it seems that the rich and powerful uh, and uh, white population especially are trying to, you know, for them to get to pay attention is how does it directly impact them? Because, you know, especially mm-hmm. with like climate change, for example, you hear all of these concerns about um, future island nations uh, eventually being wiped off the face of the earth because of sea level rise. Um, and many people all, you know, you'll hear the argument, well, that that's not going to impact me. So why should I care about it? Right. And so yeah. it's that whole mentality of, well, it has to impact me to care. It's always bugged me. And I know we brought it up during that conversation too. And I think Bethany sure. pointed the out the, the problem with that argument is that it shouldn't be that way. It should just be that we yeah. actually care about others. I remember Bethany saying that. Yeah. Yeah, the government of the Solomon Islands is currently trying to purchase a large swath of land in mainland Asia to resettle their entire population because the Solomon Islands are going to be the first nation to be completely obliterated by sea level rise. And that's already happening. Wow. And so they're trying to get ahead of it to move an entire nation and create a new one because theirs is going to not exist. So the ferns won't be able to save that. So I'll change gears here with the final segment. Um, So we are currently screwing up our ecosystem and there's there's not a whole lot of debate even if even for those people who are like die hard climate change is a hoax though even those people can't help but look at the at the world and be like wow we've also messed up other things like wetlands and all of that, right? I mean, everyone can agree to some way, shape, and form that we are doing bad things to the environment. But the environment had bad things happening to it for eons before we showed up. And I mean, the asteroid is one example. There volcanic activity in other times. There are probably other collisions. There have been uh, global climate change experiences we used to just be a ball of ice and then we were a ball of fire and there was a global forest and uh, like the earth has existed for billions of years in very different ways and life as we have it today only exists because 99.99% of all species have gone extinct without those species going away, we would not have had the niche that we needed to thrive and take over the world. So we are only here asking these questions because the world is brutal and creates by destruction. Oh, I love that. Creates by destruction. That's intense. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like, and your theologies may differ, But we so often preach this like loving shepherd who is like shepherding the cosmos, who creates things intentionally and then guides them into their fullest selves and their fruition. And um, that image of 
of a, of a benevolent creator God is hard to reconcile with the fossil record. And I'm wondering if either of you have ever spent any time thinking about that. Totally. <laughs> I kind of mean that seriously. Yeah, I, I absolutely have. Um, I... Oh, gosh, where do I go? Um, I love the beginning of Genesis, right, of Brace Sheets, and mm. that phrase, tohu vavohu, which can be translated in so many ways. Um, Robert Alter translates it as welter and waste, which is a great idea. Mm. If that's the natural, and to me, from, it, so to carry on for those that aren't in, intimately familiar with these verses, right? From Tohu Vavohu, from, now you both are, um, from, from this welter and waste comes creation. Um, and I just, I just love that idea that our natural state is chaotic. And so it's actually our challenge. It's our issue. It's our mishigas, our sort of craziness that is needing this sense of control, the world doesn't, right? And if, if the, the point of Scripture and perhaps our view of Scripture and how it creates a relationship between a divine and the human is to have a relationship, then, then this divine partnership is giving us a job. And that if... If the world in and of its in its base state is chaotic and our job so that we have one to be in relationship with divine is to imbue control, then that's kind of seems like an us problem, not a God problem and not a world problem. Um, so, yes, that's that's what I have thought about. Okay. Um. What other thoughts did I had other thoughts? Can you say your question again before you unstop cutting this part? Uh, yeah, it was just because um, <laughs> you phrased it. Uh, basically, how do we reconcile a a creation that only that grows by violence and destruction with uh, with a good God who cares about God's creation? Because I wonder, it was easier to say that back back before we knew that extinction was even possible, right? I mean, extinction, the knowledge of extinction is still a pretty recent concept. Even reaching back a couple hundred years ago, people could never imagine that you could completely obliterate a species off the planet. Um, you know, you, you think about when they would find dinosaur fossils, they just imagined that they were dragons and other you know, mythical creatures. But now we know, and we've done it. We've seen it. We have, you know, the poor dodo bird and the Tasmanian tiger and the white-horned rhino. Is that one gone now? I don't, I don't know. Think so. We're killing we're close, rhinos though. off pretty fast. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe by the time the episode airs. Um, <sighs> <sighs> Sorry, that was a little so, morbid. So chipper. <laughs> <laughs> but now we know, and now we know um, how fragile um, 
life is and how common extinction is. And so back then, when we thought that the creatures that exist are the creatures that have existed and that you know, we can come up with these mythologies of God creating the frogs and the crocodiles and the fish and the baboons and not have to think about all of their evolutionary predecessors. Um, it was easy to say God created all the things that God wanted and they were good and wonderful and loving and God wants all of them to thrive in their own separate ecosystems. But now, now we know better. And if we were to be writing a new creation myth today, given what we know, we would not create the same creation myth. We would not write a story of a God who speaks all things into existence from nothing. We would probably speak... If I'm imagining a new creation myth that I'm writing today, knowing what we know, I might imagine God speaking a... Uh, a spark. God creates a spark in the midst of all of the the kindling of the of the world, and the spark grows into a flame, which grows into an inferno, which grows right like some kind of image of something. God speaking something small, which becomes something big over time, instead of God speaking all the things right away, all prepackaged. Well, don't you think? I mean, if we were able to. What am I trying to say? So I'm I'm <laughs> hearing lots of different creation myths in my own head, um, starting from Genesis. And again, being very biased in where that's coming from, from my lens of Judaism and from the lens that it that it's sprouted from. So if we go to the Gilgamesh narrative, right, which mm. is pre-Christianity, pre-Judaism, um, but still post-civilization. Right, that that we've already planted things, we've already have wheat grown, we already have cities. We're not just people sustaining ourselves like other animals, um, but that we really have cultures in those other ways. Um, right. So if we look at the the myth of Gilgamesh, there's and the destructive nature, right? That God destroyed the world with a flood, and that. That happens a lot, or whatever God was existing in Gilgamesh. And we mm. took that into the Noah narrative, which many of our religions use. And I see the Noah narrative as we all rely on one another. So that's, that's part one, that it's not we're using this, that it's not a using of but it's an appreciation mm. of and a need for everything. That's why it says take, well, either two or four or 49 or 14. Depends how you understand the phrases and which ones you're... Two by two, does two by two mean two? Does it mean four? Because it's two times two. And then there's another verse that says seven of seven. So is that 14 or is that 49? Mm. So either way, a bunch of every creature... That means there has to be a value and a respect and a need for every creature. So I see really a positive in that. The other piece that I'd like to say in this, rather than, you know, snap your fingers, God snaps God's fingers and poof, there it is, um, which doesn't go with our understanding, is if we really look at the six days of creation as an evolutionary understanding, right? That each of these different days 
is an evolutionary moment of our world. Humans didn't show up at the Precambrian explosion at all. Something else had to come first. And if we read it, well, we have to take the chaos, the volcanic eruptions, and calm those down first. And then we get green stuff. Fantastic. Now that we have green stuff, maybe we can get a few creepy crawlies. And once we get creepy crawlies, we can get things that eat the creepy crawlies and on and on until you get to us. So rather than us, hey, we're the best, we're the biggest, we're, no, we're the last. <laughs> We were the hardest to to formulate, to evolve, and I see it as an evolution rather than a, oh, yep, magic happened. It didn't detail it because it's not a scientific book. But there is recognition that it doesn't just happen, that there's a process, and that there's there's change that needs to happen, that we're, we humans are not the same and these creatures aren't the same either. And I think there is that recognition in other cultures um, that we see. And it's really this idea that I'm, you know, this uh, domineering, we're in control. I wonder how much of that is kind of just modernity in us taking advantage of the world around us in the way that we've taken advantage of other human beings and saying, oh, if I can, if I can control a human being, how much the more so I can control the world in which we live. Mm. Um, so I, I do wonder. You know. I love creation stories. They, they say so much about the culture that thought them up, right? The, uh, um, the Babylonian creation story is uh, the, the gods create humans as slaves to do their work for them. And there's a great war between the gods and the humans uh, have to fight. And uh, there's, a, there's a part in the myth where the, the, the people are too noisy. And so the god hates them and kills most of them. So that, that same trope <laughs> comes up in, in Greek creation great. myths where Prometheus creates people. And Zeus is like, these people suck and I'm going to kill them all. And Prometheus is like, no, don't do it. I'm going to save a guy and on a boat. There's always boats. Lots of boats, boats and floods. People live by That's water. Right. Floods happen. Yep. But like those two creation stories and lots of other ones, are, they're based around violence and war. There's conflict in the world. Those are, those are domineering societies. They have conflict as the main part of their narrative. The, uh, the Lenape creation story, which is the the indigenous peoples who live up here in the Northeast um, was there was a great spirit who existed in a realm of nothingness. And that great spirit fell asleep and had a dream and dreamed of this beautiful world with its green and its growing things and woke up and decided to create, make that dream a reality. And so created four helper spirits, the grandfathers of the North, West and East and the grandmother of the South and together with the great spirit and the grandparents, they created soil, they created a great tree, and from the roots of that tree grew humans and grew other creatures. And so there's a, there's a dreaming and a creating and things emerging from the dirt, which is you know, very much in line with the way that, that the Lenape see their relationship with the soil, that everything comes from the soil, returns to the soil. 
there's not an element of of conquest and war and domineering in that. Um, I think that the story in Genesis is beautiful because it shows a God who is intimately connected with creation. Yeah, yeah, and uh, every day. Yeah, I just want to add the Hebrew piece there yeah, to yeah. the the human, right? So that the name of the first human again, I don't take it literally, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I just want to. I don't believe this was the first human, but the first human to exist in this particular set of scripture was Adam, or if we give it the Hebrew, Adam, and Adam was formed from the earth. And was then, the punishment was to till the earth till sweat came off of its nose, his nose. And earth in these words is Adama. It's the same root that we are of the earth, right? That there's, that we are not just kind of connection, but Adam from Adama. Like it's just, this is who we are. Um, again, yeah. if we look strictly at the creation story, not what we've done to it. <laughs> yeah. And God, in that story, God creates just because. Right. There's never a reason no. given. God just decides to and doesn't need to form things, just speaks it into existence. Right. And then wants to take a day off to just hang out with us. And you don't. You don't see that kind of uh, that. I think that speaks a lot to uh, the people who wrote it and the people who cling to right. it. Right, and let's also further define what this Sabbath is, what Shabbat is. Shabbat um, <laughs> is not is not strictly an um, abstaining from creation. Uh, the Sabbath is abstaining from creating or destroying, and I think that mm. extra piece is not necessarily known. And so, in religious Jewish circles, I shouldn't put it that way, in halakhically rigorous circles, in Jewish law, oh, wow, that's a complicated sentence, in... (laughs) Thank you for the clarifying. (laughs) Um, What happens is on the Sabbath, one example is, you know, we go to the bathroom. We're not going to stop going to the bathroom, but usually we have a roll of toilet paper in the bathroom. And then when you take off however many pieces that you're using, right? Any kids out there really should be about four. Mm, please stop using 20 or 30 every time. Uh, just saying. Um, not that that's been an issue in my household. So, <laughs> but you have to tear the toilet paper off the roll. And in let's just say Orthodox households, they have pre-torn toilet paper so that there's Hmm. no destruction whatsoever. Scissors are put away. There is Hmm. neither creation nor destruction that happens on the Sabbath. And I find that to be utterly beautiful, that we just appreciate what is as it is, not for what we wish it to be or for what we wish it weren't, but really just is. And mm. and we can we can use that a lot more in our in our wider society, I believe. So in our final minutes, do you want to take a stab at writing a new creation? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Well, I'll I'll go with um a translation of Genesis in a beginning. I don't believe that there is such thing as mm. the beginning. 
Mm. So that's where I would that's where I would start is in a beginning. Where would you go from there? <sighs> I didn't have one in mind when I said that. <laughs> um, but so a creation myth helps to explain the how a little bit of the how of creation, but more than that, the why of creation. And so I, I think what I'm imagining is in the beginning, God began unfolding. What do you unfold? Paper. <laughs> um, Petals. <laughs> Flower. Like an unfurling. Mm. Right? Just a blossoming of. Yeah. In the beginning, God created a flower and invited that flower to open its petals. And as, as he did, those petals opened and sprouted other flowers, which then God invited to open those flowers. And God then was present with each and every flower as they grew exponentially, which grew from one flower to two flowers to four flowers to eight flowers to 16 flowers and 32 flowers and so on and so forth. And as God was with each and every flower, saw that it was good that some flowers became blue because blue had not existed. And blue was beautiful in a way that those red flowers were not. And then as, as those blue flowers grew, God saw that it was good that some of those flowers began sprouting two heads because the previous flowers had one head and that was good, but this is also good in a different way. And as God stayed with the two-headed blue flowers, God saw that it was good that this plant stopped having flowers and grew, its, uh, grew mostly underground. And God saw that and said, wow, the other ones were above ground and outwardly beautiful, but this one's beauty comes from its function less than its form, and that too is good. And then God existed with each and every one until the universe was filled with endless diversity and beauty, and God was present and reveling and loving each and every plant that grew across the wide expanse of forever. Um, enjoying and loving and celebrating each individual difference, recognizing its goodness um, and its fragility. I don't know. There's my subparagraph. Subparagraph. Um, part two. Go back to, we have, I love how you pictured red flowers. I was picturing yellow. I love it. So we've got all of these <laughs> one-headed, unfurled, blossomed red flowers and then creates a blue one and loves that difference. And the blue one looks over at the red one and says, I love you. And the blue and the red one partner and they say, how beautiful is this newness that we ourselves created? That 
we are also part of this and we can create beauty and from them came a yellow one-headed flower and the one yellow one-headed flower looked at the blue two-headed flower that had erupted and said wow aren't you beautiful and next thing we know we have green flowers and they're underground and above ground and then they become thick and they become trees and on and on until the universe is populated not just by what is good and beautiful but by the relationships that see the beauty in each other. Yeah, that's good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think my emphasis is on the fact that the flowers um, co-create. That's that, that needs to be there, that it's not just God saying, all right, I'm tired of blue. Now here's a, here's a purple. Um, I'm tired of purple. Here's a yellow, but it's that the purple and the yellow come together and they create green somehow yeah. and uh and sp- that's a mystery spotted and speckled and all the while and- god is like hell yeah that's <laughs> and then the flowers are invited to also look at e- at the other flowers in the way that god that's sees right. them and those flowers that refuse to well they just shrivel and die refuse to see yeah they themselves <laughs> cut themselves that's off right. from the redemptive that's life right. and though they may cause some some death in in their nearby flowers they themselves are cut off from the source and wither and die into nothingness love it hmm let's do it let's write it all right i'm into it let's start a new religion <laughs> there what would we call our religion oh, by the way oh um, well, i don't know i don't know all right if anyone Leave if anyone the- at home knows tell us we need we need seeds. Yeah. <laughs> Pun intended. Leave it on our Facebook page or in the Down the Wormhole <laughs> Conversations group what we should name our new religion that is based on cosmic flowers. <laughs> <laughs> and now, on a completely separate note, off to Ian. Okay. All right. So yeah, I'll just talk real quick. So uh, for my down the wormhole minute, I really want to talk about uh, the book titled Everything is Spiritual by Rob Bell, um, which is also uh, the new tour or the tour he's been doing since uh, the fall. It's actually the third time he's done a tour called Everything is Spiritual. And I had the opportunity (laughs) to go down to a talk uh, several weeks ago. So the end of February. Uh, to Dallas to hang out with my buddy Mark and he and I went to the talk and it was a really cool experience but I just wanted to say a few things about this because it's really um, this particular book I've read several of Rob's uh, books uh, but this particular one really kind of struck me and so there's just some neat uh, quotes in here that I wanted to talk about and also to kind of I felt like it was doing it reminded me of why I want to write the book that I need to get back to because he talks a lot in there about the role of curiosity and awe and um, wonder, you know, st- stuff I want to focus on asking questions, doubting. And so this book, I was going to read a little bit real quick description from, from the cover. Uh, I've had a sense since I was young that there's more going on here, that the world is not a cold, dead place, that it's alive in some compelling and mysterious way. This book is about that sense. And then kind of goes on, I can read the whole cover description, but kind of goes on this idea of, of what types of questions he likes to ask. And so in this, it's not just a, Hey, here's things I'm curious about, but he also, it's a, um, a little bit of a memoir 
and how he ended up losing, you know, what, what led to him leaving the church that he started in Michigan. Um, and you know, the one that he was kind of kicked out of by his own people after the writing of the book, love wins. That's correct. Right. Zach it was after that book is what kind of, Oh yeah. He was mid tour when that book came out and the venue he was supposed to speak at the next day that had thousands of seats sold. There were only like a dozen people there. They just, the backlash was instant and wow. I didn't realize that part. I forgot that seething. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The, he, he just went from the, from a superstar in the evangelical world to a total pariah yeah. overnight. Interesting. Um, so in this book, he, he kind of gets into that, but one of the things I really loved about, um, in this particular book is him constantly going into a conversation around the importance of questions. Um, and the type of questions uh, that he finds fascinating, that I also find fascinating. Um, and his argument, what he was saying is that the why questions of why something is happening were not nearly as interesting to him as the what question. You know, the what happened after this, what happened after that, you know, what those losses led to that someone was experiencing. So the what questions were fascinating for him. I still am fascinated by why questions, but I was still just more of, this is really cool that you have someone who is really kind of laying it out there about who he is and what matters to him. Um, he constantly talks about the whole point of curiosity, uh, stating things like curiosity is underrated. There's a humility baked into curiosity. Curiosity is an antidote to despair. Um, he goes through in here and talks some about the um, questioning God, which, you know, I've, I think I've said on the show some, but I've definitely said in conversations with you all that when I've gotten pushback from random people online about me wanting to ask about questions I would have for God or just questions I have about religion that, uh, they, some people will defend God. And I've, my response is always, I think God can handle my questions. I don't really care if you can. And so I think, you know, and I know that Zach, you know, I've talked about this with many of the different things I've done with, um, that Rob Bell promotes and some of his work is that how, uh, I think one time I referred to him as having it and I forgot what your response to me, Zach was, but he's something like he wouldn't say he had it. Um, but it was just that how he has become such an inspiration for me, um, and a drive, but also to help me remember too, that on this, my own journey, um, and my religious and spiritual journey, um, and the things I want to learn more about that one thing I continue to work on is learning that I don't need to rely so much on the support of others in order to be successful. Like I can make decisions for myself type thing, right. That I still value the input from friends and family and colleagues of about making decisions. But I know that I am someone who will um, sometimes delay a decision simply because I'm looking for that affirmation to know it's, it's okay to make that decision. If that makes sense. So case in point, yeah. Rachel, um, Last time we saw each other, I was talking about two options I had for um, positions I was potentially uh, pursuing that would be elected to leadership wise. And uh, the week after that, I made the decision to run for neither. Um, that <laughs> third option emerged in my brain of just, hey, I don't need to do either of these things. I could focus on the book. I could do more stuff with Ooh. our science and religion work and all of that kind of stuff. And my dean was the one after I thought about it, met with him. Um, I said, this is kind of where I'm going. He said, I think you need to go with option three. It's time for you to be selfish. And so, and he said, and focus nice. on the work that matters to you. 
and then focus on your family. He said, and make sure you use those things to elevate yourself. And so, which was really nice. And he said, the other options are things you can explore later on in your career. But what I thought I get, what that gets back to though, is that I kind of knew in my heart before he and I talked, uh, almost two weeks ago that, um, I needed to not run for either of those options that I needed to be selfish. But at the same time too, I was looking for that affirmation from, uh, leader, right. From a superior, um, which is something I, I am continuously working on, like still wanting to work with my superiors, but knowing that I can make the decision on my own. Um, and so what he has this great quote in here that I really like a lot, cause this is the fear I have when it comes to writing the book I want to write is, you know, Rob in, in this book, he says, we can't control the outcomes of our work. We don't get to decide how people will respond to us. An astonishing amount of the effect of our efforts is out of our hands which is something that I, and I I still kind of find it ironic that I needed to be told that to be reminded of the fact that, you know, I don't need to necessarily always have to focus on others. If that makes sense to make my own decisions. So, I mean, I could keep rambling. I know I am. It, it's a book I recommend to people if they're at all interested in spirituality. Um, and one thing I too, I, I, over the past years with my students and my, my methods courses, especially, um, is I've really tried because I so highly value the connection that I develop with all of my students and that for a year and a half, I wasn't able to do that face to face because we were fully virtual um, and how I was so worried about it that I then learned that I could still do it. And students would talk about that even in course evaluations. And so it's something that I've really embraced with my own instruction about the importance of teaching is that it's better to connect with people and that when you are able to develop that connection with your students, that you can teach them anything. And I always tell my students that, that they need to know that you value them as a person more than just a, you're teaching them something like content wise. Mm. Um, and so, and what's, it's fascinating is that when I, while I was reading this book, everything is spiritual. He keeps talking all the idea is that everything is connected. Um, and so that was just something that I really kind of took to. So yeah, mm. that's my rambling. Well, thank you. I love you guys. <sighs> love you too. Yeah. Yo, keep that in. I heard Zach. I heard it. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of my love. <laughs> anyway, it was a really cool book. So I, yeah. Great job. Great job. 